Well, I think Mr. Lamas said afterwards that we couldn't have preserved our neutrality if we hadn't had a merchant fleet. And it certainly saved the country from uh, serious uh, food shortages. We would have had big troubles. I think we couldn't have fed the nation, fed the people, if we didn't have it. got those ships at that time. I got no recognition for my service from the Irish government. I was in the limit steam. As I've told you, three or four of them, I got nothing on just when, when the war was it over yet when we got had to go a representative of the I suppose the Queen, Wills, gave us those medals in Milford. Everyone got one each. And my brother has five. Myself, my wife and the kids were there. Uh, and my mother was at the top of the table. We got her to talk. We were just talking away and started talking about her family and you know, the Argentinian thing came up. She didn't know too much about it while I was there. And uh, the Lucas came up. They didn't know what happened. And I uh, asked her for a bit more information about her father. And she couldn't tell me anymore. And we just said, um, I have a bit of time in my hands now, Ma. Do you mind if I start telling into this? I got a medal from the Irish government two years ago, and if you add that up from 1940 up to 2000, you know, it took a long time to get a medal, which I did in Dublin Castle. And a lot of the Irish sailors did get medals, but a terrible lot were lost. There was only two of us out of when we went to Dublin Castle. Tom Sharkey was the other fellow, my friend. He was on the Irish flights with me. And there was only two of us alive to receive the, the medals. The rest were all dead. And um, the wives were there and their sons and daughters. It was terrible, you know, just two of us alive to receive those medals. Took a terrible long time. In about October of 1986, I went down to Lombard Street, the registry office, and uh, I asked for a death certificate because I wanted to prove that my mother was entitled to a award, you know, on behalf of her, of her um, uncle, uh, my grand uncle, and uh, none of these deaths were registered. It was part of the criteria for awarding your medals to prove entitlement. Um, I went back to the Department of, of it was actually it was the Department of Communications, the Marine Section, and I raised the issue with them. And they turned around, they turned around and, and said, oh, well, uh, it wasn't our responsibility. That's the answer I got. Even though the responsibility that registered those debts was with the Department at the time. Now I'm talking about uh, the time of the sinking of the, the particular vessel under the 1894 Merchant Shipping Act, Section 254. This is, they were entitled, or they were, that was a requirement, that was the law. I think the way they treated the, some of their, uh, the members of the Merchant Marine was diabolical. I mean, as, as far as I know, some of them got no pension or anything. I was lucky I was employed by an English firm. But, uh, 
I don't think the, the Marine should, the Irish Merchant Navy should never have been let go. A lot of things went wrong in, in, in the first years of independence. There was the, the worldwide slump, there was the economic war, so nobody invested in shipping in Ireland. There was no, there was no business for to be a ship owner. And the government never seemed to face up to the fact that we would eventually someday need to have our own ships. It was a government neglect, not private really, I think, because the private were, would only buy ships if they could make uh, money out of them. And so when the war, when the threat of war came in 1939, the government was still very slow to react and did nothing until 1941 when they formed Irish shipping. And that was the big neglect that went on. And they had even let uh, six oil tankers, brand new ships, had been built for a proposed oil refinery here in Dublin. And they were transferred to the British flag the day the war started. And uh, the government didn't object at all. And the, the result of that was that every drop of oil we used here in Ireland during the war was carried here in an Allied tanker. So we had nothing ourselves. So. I went to sea in '37 and joined on Waterford. I was, I was cool cover. So I joined another one after that called the Antelope. She was owned in Wexford by two solicitors. And my brother was with me, we joined her, and he said to me the first day, this old skipper, could you mend a sail? Yeah, I could make a sail, I said to him. Oh, he said, that you'll do fine, he said to me. And I decided, after a long time, I'd go deep sea. There was no money, you know. Shielding a day, there was more money for me. I went in a canard boat then, four voyages to Australia. I was only ordinary seaman. I said, four voyages in that one. And I come home, and I paid off for the whole... And I joined another one called the Wellington Court, loaded potash in Antwerp and or Germany, and went to Jacksonville, Savannah, and Brunswick, and just loaded cotton there for the lads in Dock and Liverpool. And I only said one trip on that one. That was a Roman disposition. I joined the banana boats after that. The war was coming up now. This was getting late in 1938. I run four voyages in her to Jamaica, Montego, for bananas. And I got fed up in Horse Hill. And the war started, and Mr. McMahon, mate of the Moyala, Lemon Steve, sent for me with a joiner. I was delighted. I joined McMahon in the first year of the war, I think it was, would, would be, would be. The fleet at Independence numbered 127 ships. And due to this uh, selling off and not replacing and not renewing, it had dropped to 56 when, in, in, in 1939. And they were none of them were ocean-going ships, they were only small coasters, so they couldn't carry large quantities of grain, uh, which is what we really wanted. Big, big ships of about nine, ten thousand 10,000 tonnes, we hadn't got them. In the beginning, we relied on chartering ships uh, from the Greeks. But then, of course, the Greeks got involved in the war themselves when... Uh, Hitler invaded Greece and their ships were taken away from us. So we really had nothing in, until March 1941 when the government formed Irish Shipping Limited and went looking to buy ships. But now it was, the prices were horrific at this stage, you know, because everybody wanted ships. Ships were scarce and they had to pay some terrible prices for old wrecks of ships. Uh, and the ships were very old. Uh, I was on the Irish Poplar, the first Irish Poplar, and she was 37 years of age, which would be like you buying her 
15 year old car you know they were, they were just they were very badly maintained run down and it was just they couldn't get spares for them couldn't get replacement parts so that was the big problem they had well my father was in irish lights uh, he was on the alexander and uh, the sea was in our blood and um, he always wanted me to go to sea so I joined the ice soldier in around about 1939 uh, it was at the, the landfall of the bull rock and that happened and um, I joined her in pantry I, I was uh, 18 at the time I was never nervous going to sea no. Even in wartime. Deck boy on the ice holder. There was two deck boys on the ice holder. And what we used to do was, in the morning time, one of the deck boys would be on watch. Uh, if any, the captain or officers wanted any messages or anything like that, he would blow a whistle. And the boy was always there. So the other boy, I was down in the in the officer's saloon at the time, giving the, the steward a hand, making the beds and cleaning up. That was the deck boy's job. By 1939, there were only a handful of uh, shipping companies left. Palgrave Murphy's in Dublin, they had about six ships, all beginning with the word city, city of Dublin, city of Limerick, city of Waterford. Then there was a Limerick steamship company, they had about six or seven cattle carrying ships, mainly from the west coast of Ireland to Liverpool and to also to Antwerp they ran and uh, there was the Wexford Steamship Company and they were the most modern they had three ships which they had built also for the cross-channel trade but they were motor ships uh, much more economical and much more uh, better suited for the trades because the others were coal burning ships which had big problems with getting coal every time they went and moved anywhere and then there was an aircraft schooner fleet like that. Uh, they had a 15 sailing schooners with auxiliary engines on them but they were all very old and apart from that, there were individual ships owned in individual ports, like Skibbereen owned it one, a schooner, uh, Dungarvan owned it a collier, uh, Dundalk had one called the Margaret Lockington steamer, and a handful of ships like that, and of course the Dublin Gas Company, which carried coal from uh, the Lancashire coal fields to Dublin for the gas company itself. They had three ships, and that was the fleet. The government claimed afterwards that we had an agreement with the British that they would supply tonnage, they would supply ships and keep the country going in exchange for us keeping them with food. But they were really up against it. They couldn't, they couldn't honour their commitments because they were losing so many ships. Uh, I went to sea in 1941. To, uh, I got a certificate in Cork and I joined Marconi and they went to, to sea on the Lamberton Hold ship, a British ship. I think I was about seven or eight months on her. And uh, I was home and leave, and then I got a phone from an office, the Marconi office in Dublin, to join the Irish Oak, which is in Cork. One of the operators there couldn't make it, so I went down and joined her. It was at sea next, next, uh, next day, and we sailed for Halifax. Loaded there with grain, and back to Dublin. Came home. I got another phone call then to join, after about a week, to join uh, the Irish Rose in Waterford and join that. 
and then she was a coal burner and I think we had to go to Port Talbot to uh, bunkers and from there we again we went to uh, now this time to St John New Brunswick not St John's Newfoundland and, and, and those trips we went north about you know, further north you go the shorter the journey so we went to St John's St John New, New Brunswick and from there <clears throat> we came back I think just to Cork and then I don't know whether I did another trip in that or not but I did lots of other trips on Irish ships the uh, the Spruce was one the Irish Beach the Irish Larch there was rumours at the time that people um, had been captured uh, after the war, you know, Irish merchant seamen were in prison or war camps, even at that particular time during the war here, there was rumours coming back. Uh, in some cases, widows had pensions taken off them because of it, on the basis of rumour. But uh, I, I think that even when they had proof that there was a, definitely a reluctance to to uh, initiate the formal procedure, the legal procedure and the legal requirement under that act, to register these debts, um, maybe for a fear of apportioning blame to anyone's side. And maybe the issue of neutrality comes up in this. And not only registration of a debt, but the fact that the, the, that it would have been registered, and uh, maybe the blame portion to either belligerent, the British or, or, or the German, could have had consequences, you know. But nevertheless, they were required under the law to do so. And the fact that they didn't do so had severe consequences for people at that particular time. They were left not only with a bereavement, but they were left with, with, with the, uh, the fact that positions were not regularised. In several cases, just to give you an example, people couldn't get married here. Priests couldn't get married. You've got to remember it was Catholic Ireland at the time, and it was very conservative. It was Devilers Ireland, if you want to call it. And you had that, that you know, um, a woman left with children and, you know, people immigrated to England. You'll find quite a few relatives went to the UK at the time because they couldn't get to, uh, well, someone couldn't get married again, but they had to survive. In one case, there was an issue in relation to prostitution. In another case, there was, there was a family, a person actually went along Pear Street picking up horse dung to sell it. That was another way of making money. But they were left. The compensation package that was agreed later on didn't come into effect for them about 18 months afterwards and there wasn't all that much. But later on, obviously, with the social welfare issue, they were, they were uh, brought, up to, uh, brought up to speed. But at the time, uh, people, you know, the debt certificate itself, insurance. If you have to get insurance, you have to have a registration of debt. You have to prove the person was dead legally. The department issued a certificate at the time and it was a certificate under the 1894 Merchant Shipping Act. But they gave that certificate to the, to the relatives. Really, the department should have notified the, the Lambert Street as the informant under the act. Uh, that's the way it should have happened. But they didn't do it. And, uh, you know, mistakes occurred and that was that. Bacon, eggs and tin milk was our cargo twice a week from... Limerick, Phoenix, Galway, Liverpool. 
But more or less, we were bringing food across there, which shouldn't have been. We were running a blockade show. But fortunately, we were never attacked with any airplanes or anything. And we were running in this night, a dark night, and blowing the rain, a heavy night, and all the lights were right across Swansea, Swansea, outside. And MacMahon was gone down below to turn in, he was mate of the ship, and I was on, on the wheel with the skipper. Captain Keogh from the Lauder. And he says to me, there's someone Martian who was very heavy there ashore, he said, I didn't understand Martian, and neither did he. He says, go down quick, he says, and call McMahon. He says, come up. And so I run down and I called McMahon. I, I needed to say he wasn't in good humour because now then we have to get him into the bed. But however, I got him out quick on you, there's something wrong up, you better come up quick. He come up on you, he took the glasses. He had a look at your Mr. McMahon, and he dropped the glasses, and he, he, the marshal was going to you, you, you are standing into danger, keep out. You, you, you are standing into danger, keep out. We were going right into the boom defence. Bombs right across. A boom defence, they called it. You, you went, if you touch it, you'd look up in the sky. And she was only about three ships lengths away from it. And McMahon made the drive and caught the wheel with me. He said, how to stab it, how to stab it, how to stab it. And we done that. And we turned around to see, just in the nick of time. The war zone was declared around the British Isles on the 15th of August, 1940. That would be just after the sort of the evacuation from Dunkirk, that period when Britain now was isolated. And the Germans said that they would, if they would sink any ship uh, within the area around the British, close around the British Isles, and it included Ireland, and they did sink ships. Declared no ship was to move there at all. They, they, they didn't. Re they didn't recognise uh, our sort of neutrality of it, for the shipping point of view. Irish ships were definitely neutral. They obeyed all the rules that they were supposed to. They didn't uh, favour one side or the other. I think there was something like over five hundred men from of both British and German and, and Americans were, were saved by the Irish ships during the war. So they were totally impartial and neutral in, in their activities. We had to load coal for uh, British ships. All the Irish shipping and Irish ships that were going to Lisbon had to load coal for, uh, for the British government. We had to go to Ardrossan to load coal. And uh, we were Three days in Ardrossan loading coal. Set sail down from Ardrossan uh, down to the Fastener, and uh, we had to go uh, two days west and two days south and three days east, because at the beginning of the war there was a lot of Irish ships in English convoys, and uh, they kept their lights on and the British government didn't like that being in convoys it was giving away the position of the ships because the Germans were coming over and machine gunning and bombing them and then there was uh, submarines around so they decided then that the, British, the Irish government would have to take their ships out and mark them with air on the side and light them up at night time and give them a course uh, 
that they wouldn't interfere with, with the convoys, the British convoys. But every day while we were at sea, there was a British and a German bomber out getting our position. And if you were inside that line, they would uh, machine gun you. You had to be outside of all those lines. But you see, there were a lot of convoys coming down the wrist, down to the, the channel and that wrist and channel, and uh, going across to the Western Ocean and all that. The Simric was unfortunate. She was a sailing ship, and the Mary B. Mitchell, and they were sailing to Lisbon. And it seems anyway that the Simric had got inside this line and uh, was sunk by a German bomber with the loss of all the crew. Well, what happened there was the Americans didn't want to get involved in the European war and they wouldn't allow their ships come near Europe at all. The nearest they would allow them to go was to Lisbon and Amer American ships with cargoes bound for Ireland would put the cargo ashore in, in Lisbon and it was up to us then to get it from Lisbon to Dublin. And that is how a lot of the little ships, the Limerick Steamship Company and the Wexford Shipping Companies, their small ships started trading to Lisbon. It was a transshipment port and that's how the Lisbon connection came. They couldn't just head straight down the Bay of Biscay. They used to have to head straight out as far as the Fastnet to avoid this uh, air place, uh, what the British call it. Uh, they, they also said put their own blockade on, by the way. They said it would shoot anything in the Bay of Biscay area, so our ships had to go a long way out into the Atlantic and right down to get down to Lisbon, and it, it put extra cost on the journey. But and, and then I came back to the Irish Oak again. As I was only the second operator then, but I was on my own on the smaller ships, but on the Oak we had two operators. And then we went <coughs> to uh, Tampa, Florida, and we had engine trouble going. And we broke down off Florida and we were catching fish there off, off the Florida coast. And, uh, and then we went around by Port Tampa into Port Tampa where we were there for six weeks for repairs, engine repairs. And then we, uh, we headed home then with Rain, I think it was no, no phosphate. Phosphate, we hit it home with phosphate, and on the way home, we got as far as the uh, the Azores, and then we were tailing a convoy, and they were being they were being uh, torpedoed, but I thought the skipper would veer off either east or west, but instead he kept following the the uh, convoy, and then. <clears throat> That night, we could see a, a submarine on the surface. I said, well, it must be a British submarine, you know, but it wasn't, it was the German submarine. Because as we got nearer it, it went down like a shot in the, you could see the spray going up. And that was about seven o'clock at night. And we said, that must have been a British submarine. But next morning at half eight, and we were torpedoed. Most of the Irish fleet, Irish shipping fleet, was on the North Atlantic trade going to Canada to pick up grain. A few used to go down to Tampa in Florida to load phosphate. Uh, one uh, went to, uh, the first one ever went to South America in the summer of 1943. 
Irish popper he was, she went to British Guiana to load sugar. Uh, they couldn't go up the Baltic because the Baltic was closed. The Germans controlled the Baltic. And it was the North Atlantic was the main the potential route. They spent the whole war on. The worst years in the Atlantic, during the Battle of the Atlantic, were 1941 and 42 and 43. Uh, because after May 1943, the U-boats were really driven off. The British had won the Battle of the Atlantic. But uh, two of the Irish ships were lost. One in 1942 and one in 1943. In November 1942, the Irish plane was torpedoed uh, somewhere off Boston by a U-boat. And uh, the interesting thing was, was he had followed her all day in snowstorms. It was November. And he said he never saw the neutrality Americans on her side. All the ships at the time had uh, the Irish flag painted on their sides. And uh, they didn't have the drab grey that a British ship would have. They were plain black and brown upper works on them. So... It, he said he didn't see it anyway, and he followed her for eight hours. And finally, when he got into a good position, he fired two torpedoes at her. And she sank in three minutes, and uh, there was no survivors. 34 men, I think. The other case was the following summer, uh, in May of 1943, and the Irish Oak was uh, outward bound for uh, Canada. And she was about 500 miles west of Ireland. And at eight o'clock in the morning, she was torpedoed by a submarine. And fortunately, all the crew got into the lifeboats and escaped, and uh, they were picked up a few hours later by another Irish ship. But the fellow who sank her, uh, he claimed that he saw her name, that he checked the name against the list of approved neutral ships, and he couldn't find it on, in this list, and he sank her. And uh, he was 23 years of age, and he was captain of a U-boat. But fortunately, in that case, there was no loss of life. The Lucas itself was fired on by the German submarine U-38 at 200 metres, uh, by the skipper, Lieber, by the, he was commanding at the time, with a deck gun, and it was, I think it was a four-inch shell. It hit her in, in, the, in the, the midships, or just aft, rather, where, where the boiler is, and um, she just blew up. But she didn't sink at first. She stayed afloat for about 15 minutes. And some of the other trawlers that had been fishing with the Lucas at the time uh, put their lights out. Perhaps the skipper, who was uh, from Fleetwood, uh, may have seen the U-boat at that particular time because they would fish in a sort of a line. And that line could have been construed by the German as a, a sort of a, a search line for U-boats. You know, if they, they had sonar at that particular time. I, 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 yeah, they had. And it could have been a patrol line. So the U-boat skipper could have been... He felt threatened. But I, 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 my feeling is this, is that the, the U-boat was approaching the, what he thought were neutral Irish trawlers with all the lights on for a bit of fish because that's what they were doing. That's the reality. Uh, uh, they weren't helping them, but they were probably feeding them. But the, the U-boats would come up and give them a bit of fish, and that was that. But I think he approached a bit too close. The U-boat suddenly discovered that there was a bit more than one Irish trawler there. There was a couple of Brits there as well. And I think... Uh, the skipper of the Lucas probably took action, seeing the U-boat, and attempted to run. There was 11 people that were lost on the Lucas, and Patrick, my granduncle, Patricio McCarthy, was, was um, also lost. He was the cook. He was from Carlton Road, here in Marino. We had done the Tusker relief on the morning before, and the next morning we collected the Bartles and Connie Brown relief in Ross Lair. 
and sailed for about uh, 20 minutes to nine to go to the Bible's lightship and carried out uh, relief on the Bible's lightship. Everything was quiet. Uh, it was a fine morning and a big lazy swell, but no wind at all. And then, after about, about a quarter to ten, we left the Barton's Lightship, going for the county bag. So, about two miles from the county bag, there was a, a, a big plain site just inside of us, off the Salty Islands. And um, the next minute, uh, the captain knew it was a German bomber. And um, I was down in the saloon, I didn't know anything. I just heard it coming over the, over the ship at the time. And the noise was terrible as the four engine bomber over just the height of the mast. So um, he just came over us to have a look at us to see where we were carrying machine guns or anything. Circled around again. And next minute he dropped two bombs, which went down the engine room. The ship shuddered then. So, a terrible explosion. So, uh, I ran up out of the, uh, the saloon, and uh, I met two of the men that had come off duty that morning at 8 o'clock. They were having had their breakfast and uh, cleaned their quarters and they were going to bed. And, we met and uh, we, we just said uh, goodbye to one another <laughs> and they were killed outright. So I ran forward for it uh, to the quarters where the, the men, the sailors lived. And lucky enough, uh, the, the motor cutter had been launched during the, when the first two bombs dropped, they got her down in the water and they had lowered a cutter. The light, uh, motor cutter was on the starboard and the uh, port side and the cutter was on the starboard side. So we got two boats down. Then they, um, I was down in the forecastle and I put on a life jacket and um, just when I got my life jacket on, there was a terrible explosion and um, the bell on the forecastle head hit uh, hit the steel deck and the noise of the bell hitting the steel deck I really got frightened it did really frighten me but um, I ran up anyway I got up the ladder and onto the onto the deck and then onto the top deck the bridge deck I saw the cutter wasn't in the Davis, so I ran over and got down a lifeline into the cutter. And um, there was quite a good few men in the cutter at the time. So um, eventually uh, the plane came again. He was determined to kill everyone in the cutter. When he circled around, he dropped his bomb and the bomb hit the boat spar. 
and lucky enough the spark fell in on top of it. Injured a couple of the men. The bomb hit the spark and fell inboard, lucky enough. And a terrible explosion then. So everyone was shouting, we should get away from the ship. Which we did. And um, the motor launch was circling around just in case there was people, any more survivors to jump into the water, but there was none. So we had uh, got away from the ship and we put out some oars just to keep the cutter close to the ship in case anyone was going to jump over the side, but there was no more survivors. The Isola sunk about 20 minutes afterwards. Yes, yes. And the six men were lost, the bodies were never found. It's all going down, yes. Terrible. It's just went down, stone first. I just looked around and saw just going down. I didn't want to see any more. <laughs> the way I felt. Now, the registration of the death itself, uh, the first registration took place, I think, in February of 1987. And uh, my mother was presented with that medal. So we had success. But then I tried to apply it to the rest because uh, uh, not only was his death not registered, there was 148 more that weren't registered either. Those that were lost as the direct result of belligerent action never had their deaths registered. And it spent months working with people to try and convince them that this was the procedure, the way to go. And people can get medals out. But there was a memorial to be erected uh, in 1990, and we're talking about pre-1990, in City Key, that all these people were on the roll of honour. Uh, families had been left, they couldn't get married, were pensions taken off on the basis of the government, and at least they deserved to have their position vindicated at these deaths, at least. These were men of honour, they'd lost their lives during, on our behalf, uh, that the, the minimum people could do was recognise that position. The Irish government was ambivalent at the time, the Irish government didn't want to know. They had they they, they issued a, they decided in 1947 under a regulation to 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 uh, recognise um, the people that went out on those ships. And they were aware there were British who were foreign nationals lost in Irish vessels. Uh, the forced the forced publication. Uh, in the papers took place in relation to encouraging people to come forward and claim these medals was in August 1951. August 1951, and it was only a small little space in the newspapers. And that was all that was done. There was nothing further. It got my craw, if you want to, if you will, uh, that here we were, that uh, 149 guys, without no, buckets, steel buckets is what they went out and 149 lost these lives, their last lives. There was no memorial at the time. There was enormous, enormous sort of um, difficulties placed in people's way in claiming awards. They should have been issued with anyway. I joined a ship then in Dublin called the Blush Rose, a light ship bound for. Gibraltar to pick up a convoy, light ship. At six o'clock in the evening, 
I come down from the wheel right opposite the bishop's lighthouse in the Bristol Channel, the owner of that place that time, the German. And that time there was cement block, cement slabs round the wheelhouse, so the bullets couldn't get through with the kit at the wheel. But anyhow, this was an old ship to you. And she sailed to pick up the convoy, and I was at the coming off of the wheel down on the deck. I was standing as bright as it's out there in the yard now at six o'clock in the evening. And lo and behold, the next thing I knew, there was a plane coming out of the heaven. It was that high up. Right down the top of us. I could see the swastika stick on the side of the plane. I'm looking at you now, summer eve, well, February evening. And he let go of the five bombs. I could see him the same now if I, I wouldn't tell a lie on it. They didn't, they don't fall straight when he drops it with, with the speed and the way they fall sideways, if you follow me. And I know this, this plane that I'm looking at that yoke there now, there, there was a division between the first three and the, and two. I, can, I remember that. They didn't, they weren't like steps of stairs of the four together now. But there was a, a space between the first three and then three more come, let go five. And luckily, you wouldn't have to believe it, three fell at one side of the ship and two with the other. That was as near as it was to it. Three fell there at the side of the ship and she, she could come through the space and two fell there. And when they stuck the water, they caused an open storm when they exploded. And there was no one hurt aboard the ship, only minor scratches and cuts, what have you, and that. All the hatches and the covers went in the sky with the concussion. And all the decks was cracked, and the steering gear was cracked. Everything was put out of action. And the lifeboat Davis on the lifeboat broke here at the deck and fell in like that across. You couldn't launch a lifeboat. I knew straight away because I knew by the sound and a terrible shudder with the boat as it was lifted up and down. And we all knew it was a torpedo. But after about a minute or two, we went out. I went out on deck for, to go after for the, the radio station and uh, you could see all the debris lying around and the derricks down and, and some of the boats on the, she was torpedoed on the port side. They were wrecked, but the ones on the starboard side were okay. So we managed to lo uh, lower two of those. Luckily, nobody was injured or anything, but the, there's a hell of a lot of damage done. Derrick's falling and that sort of thing. And uh, my job was to get the uh, the transmitter onto the lifeboat, which I did. And senior RO, he was sending out an SOS, but we abandoned both them in about 30 minutes. The sea was flat calm like a lake, not even a ripple on the sea. She was like a, an inverted V, you know. The, the, the bow was half down and the back side was way up in the water. And she, she, some of the fellas thought, uh, decided, yeah, we'll go back aboard and get some of our gear. But, so the captain wouldn't allow him, there's no way. So the next, after a while, they uh, put another torpedo in, she went down and uh, I'd say very quickly, but it was frightening then to see the water spurting up and all the debris coming out. They picked us up after about 10 hours. Most of us thought it was a silly thing.
So, uh, it was silly in a way because the submarine must have thought that we were a straggler from the convoy. But he couldn't because we were well lit up at night and we had the Irish tricolour on both on both sides. And he, he must have known it wasn't a British ship. I got all my evidence together. Names, addresses and ages of everyone, including all the contemporary documentation, including all the war areas, every one of them. Every bit of information I had. Uh, a paper, this is from German sources, American sources and all. And I photocopied and I sent it to Charles Hottie. Within three weeks, I had a response. Within, now we're talking about June, within five weeks, I had the offer of a meeting at the top, in the in Lombard Street. And by November the 14th, the first league of precedent, See, the debt was registered a second time because they wouldn't apply it under the first registration. But a legal precedent was created on November the 14th, 1988, pursuant to Section 4 of the Births Debts Marriages Registration Act, 1972. The debt of Patricio McCarthy was registered under that Act, but it was also agreed that that registration would act as a precedent for everybody else, and it has been used. I think it had something to do with wanting to become independent, the idea of Sinn Féin. And I think that ships became associated with empire. And I think that was why we wanted to get away from that in the 1920s. I think that was the reason that ships hinted at international trade. And But our people didn't want that. They, didn't, they wanted to have Sinn Féin, be self-contained, speak Irish. Uh, not be in the broader world. And I think that was the, the a lot of the thinking that influenced and it's having its effect now sixty years later, eighty years later. It wasn't important to them to have ships. They were quite happy in nineteen twenty when we became an permanent uh, independent to let the British run the, the lifeboat service, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, and the British to, to pay for and run the uh, lighthouse service, the Irish lights and that's gone on ever since. So there was, for some reason, they, they just didn't want to take over uh, the maritime burden of a nation. At the end of the day, there's a moral obligation on a state to remember its dead, of those that have lost their lives. We live with a bereavement. It continually happens in families that we talk about. And we need to have, if it's been done on behalf of the state, which it was, our families pay the price. We need to vindicate our experience. And that experience is, 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 is vindicated by a state responding in a positive way, by respecting our experience in a formal manner, such as the presentation of medals, such as memorial services. People might ask, was a long time ago. For you, my good man, it was a long time ago. For me, it's every day.